So getting back to this description part of Torah, where every mitzvah can be seen as a description of what we are and how we work and how we can't work and it won't work, the laws of tzniyas, the laws of modesty, are basically um, a very integral part of what makes us who we are that we overlook so carelessly in our generation, thinking that it's a chachma, and that it's some kind of an accomplishment to be able to not be tzniyazdik. But the fact is that along with the, along with the uh, condition of, of filial loyalty into which we are created, that we are attached to our parents and not detached from them, along with that we are also created in such a way that innocence, innocence is to us uh, an integral and essential ingredient that is indispensable. We can't not be innocent. We're basically innocent people. And when we act in ways that are not innocent, we, we, we choke ourselves, we distort ourselves, and eventually we'll find out that we can't live like this. In this case, we're talking about, about modesty, innocence in terms of modesty, that, uh, that our society has discovered that when you're callous or careless with your intimacy, you find after a while that you cannot be intimate even when you want to be. And that's what we're having a, an epidemic in the United States and probably in other countries as well. An intimacy crisis People can't be intimate. Terrified of it. Or incapable of it. Because everything has lost its meaning. Everything has lost its magic. I mean, when... when um, yeah, but I don't think it... It's, it's good to know that we've been hurt by the fact that we abused intimacy, not that we abused each other. You know, to blame it on each other is really not helpful. So, oh, men abuse women or something like that. So fine, so you're going to be angry at men. What is that going to help you? What is that going to teach you? To locate the damage, not in the interpersonal relationship, but in the way that we treated ourselves is a much more helpful um, description of what of what's going on because this happens even in marriage where there is never any other relationship at all but if you're not modest or tzniyazdik within the marriage after a while even within the marriage nobody was hurt nobody was abused but the intimacy doesn't exist I mean to, to be graphic about it people who go down to the beach and spend an entire day romping in their swimming and then later need to become intimate, what's to be intimate about? What's intimate? I mean, there's... Or as this, uh, this um, article in the, in the New Yorker, where the interviewer was sitting at a table and talking about, about not shaking hands. 
not talking about anything intensely emotional, not shaking hands, whether that is a necessary precaution or not. So that also serves as a good example. People say, look, shaking hands, I mean, come on. Torah says that unless you're married, there should be no intimate physical contact between a man and a woman. So we don't shake hands. So people say, wait a minute. You said intimate physical contact. Shaking hands is intimate? The answer is, if it's not, if it isn't intimate, how did that happen? How did it come to not be intimate? How did it come to a stage where a man and woman can be shaking hands and it's not intimate? And whatever intimate means here. It's not anything. We're not saying what should be or what, what ought to be. We're talking about our native condition. In a native condition, the way God created men and women, shaking hands should be something. It should be something. Between a man and a man, it shouldn't be. It was never intended to be. If it is, you're doing something extraordinary. You're getting, going out of your way to create it. But between a man and a woman, there should be a, a chemical reaction from shaking hands. And if there isn't, it's not because we've become sophisticated. It's not because we've grown up. It's because we've died a little bit. We've become a little dulled. So it started off with shaking hands. Where is it now? But not uh, just using this example. Not all women are attracted to all men, and not all men are attracted to all women. Or, or somebody, somebody else once said, "Before you shake a woman's hand, just tell her under which conditions you're allowed to shake a woman's hand. She's above seventy, you know." <laughs> And then see if I think you're right. You don't have the same reaction to all people, um, but you can't you, you can't discriminate like that. So you can't um, yeah you can't make that kind of that kind of distinction with people. But also, how did we get to that level? How did we get to where ninety percent of the opposite sex is not appealing? Is that natural? We don't know anymore, right? <laughs> How can you tell if it's natural? Because no, I don't think I don't think it's natural. I mean, I think it's true. I think it's very true. But I'm not sure that this is a healthy state. I think this is part of our unhealthiness that we are so limited in what we can uh, feel excited about. And again, this is. This is a result of books and magazines and articles and pictures and movies. And, but modesty doesn't mean safe. And modesty doesn't mean neutered. Because Torah doesn't go for that. Uh, as a matter of fact, Torah specifically forbids men to look like women or for women to look like men. Which means that a woman has to look like a woman. Now, where's the modesty in that? But this is clothing styles. I mean, yeah. it's got like men wear skirts. No, no. But according to Torah, a woman cannot dress like a man. Okay. I so that seems to go against. That seems to go against modesty. If all women dressed like men, there'd be no problem with modesty. You wouldn't even know who's a man, who's a woman. Okay. 
That's not what Torah wants. Torah does not want an asexual society. Modesty is not intended to make us asexual. Modesty is meant to, on the one hand, protect our, our vulnerabilities, and at the same time, preserve them. There are certain degrees of modesty that are destructive to our self because it buries, it buries who we are, it buries our identity, our gender, our sensitivities, and so on. So modesty is a very delicate balance. It's not as simple as saying, put on something four sizes too big and you're modest. It's not that simple. Because then you're not being modest. Then you're just ignoring the whole issue. Modesty means being a woman in the proper way, but not forgetting that you're a woman. And how do you protect yourself? By dressing in such a way where you don't have to worry about being a woman. But that's not what Torah wants. Torah doesn't want you to not have to worry about being a woman. You should worry about being a woman, because you are a woman. Only you got to do it the right way. And the same thing with the shaitl, where you don't want a married woman to be attractive, then how do you let her wear a shaitl? She should wear a mop. How do you let her wear a shaitl? A $400 shaitl. Never looked so good in her life. Because the shaitl isn't meant to make you forget you're a woman or to make people think you're a mop. <laughs> Tzniyas has to accomplish both things. It has to preserve your, your identity, your, your sensitivity, your awareness of yourself, but it has to preserve it balanced so that it's not wasted and not stifled. But if you go too much in either direction, it's not modest. So I happen to have my personal uh, hang-up with certain religious people in Mayashariam or in other places in, in, in the United States where they dress so modestly that it worries me. I don't think it's, I don't think it's modest. Lifestyle easy. You know, overdressed doesn't mean modest. See, we had this discussion about 10 years ago in a class right here. And it was, it was interesting that uh, the girls from Base Rifka were sitting here dressed very much the way people dressed then, which was not the long skirts that people wear today. It was decent. But the people from Haight-Ashbury were wearing the peasant gowns of the, of, the hippie, of the hippie world much more modest. Infinitely more modest because they all wore the same dress. Even though they were different sizes, it didn't matter. <laughs> it was that kind of a dress where, you know, one size fits all. It was down to the floor, absolutely no shape, and had long sleeves. It was very modest. And somebody asked, you know, what are you giving us this, this thing about modesty? Look at these girls from Base Rifka, not modest. We're more modest. And yet, when we get to Crown Heights, people look at us funny. What are you looking at us funny for? We're the ones who are modest. 
But the truth is, if you look not at the way they were dressed, look at the way they lived. Who was more modest? And they said, oh, okay, oh, of course. <laughs> I said, but <laughs> petty, petty, picky. So the question then was, what, if you dress more modestly, how come you're not more modest in your behavior, in your lifestyle? Obviously, this is not more modest. It's not more modest. It's more indifferent. I mean, you don't want to compete in the fashion world because, for whatever reason, so you say, you make a statement to that effect by wearing these clothes and saying, I'm not part of that game. That makes you more modest. Not necessarily at all. So I think overdressing may, in a, in a way, be immodest in, 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 the, in the effect that it has on the person. So modesty is not merely a matter of putting on more. That's not what modesty is. Okay. And exactly, exactly why the skirt is more modest than, than, than pants and so on, this you have to have a discussion with some of the women. Immodesty doesn't mean looking beautiful. Looking beautiful is not immodest. It may not be humble, but it's not immodest. <laughs> immodesty means when something intimate is not honored or respected with, with privacy. In other words, as part of our honor or respect for things that are intimate and, and holy, we, we give it privacy as a sign of respect. The Gemara says that a woman's hair is sensuous. And therefore, a woman's hair can't be treated lightly. It has to be treated with, uh, with privacy. It has to be covered. Now, what, what exactly uh, constitutes sensuality? Or what does it mean that hair is sensual? Uh, today, people are saying, supposedly the experts on the subject, are saying that skin is the most sensual part of the body. So you have to hide your skin. And, I mean, there's some truth to that. Skin is, is sensual, though, isn't it? But the Gemara decided, for some reason, the sages decided that, yes, it is, but it doesn't have to be hidden. There's some discussion in the Talmud as to whether teeth are sensuous. They are. But the Gemara decided they don't have to be hidden, unlike the Muslims who hide their teeth. But here, the Gemara decided was sensuous and it should be private. In a married woman, not in a single woman. But whatever that explanation is, as to how did the rabbis know exactly what is sensuous and what is not, they're not supposed to notice these things. <laughs> much less to be an expert in it. Um, like the censors who have to watch the movies to see if it's okay. Uh, but however they came to that determination, um, 
the point of the shaitl is not so that you don't look good or so that you don't look glamorous or that you don't look attractive. No. The point of the shaitl is so that that which is sensuous is not publicly displayed. And what is sensuous? Hair, not wigs. A wig is not sensuous. It can be beautiful, it can look good from a distance, but when you get close enough, it's not sensuous. It's because it's not alive, it's dead. So after 15 years of wearing a shaitl, you can take it off. <laughs> if your hair is that bad. Uh, hair that was covered all day with a shaitl is no longer beautiful, but it's still sensuous. I want to say to somebody, try running your fingers through someone's shaitl. And you'll know the difference between sensuous and unsensuous.